A reading from the fifth chapter of Second Kings, beginning with verse 1. Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded, because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who was in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten sets of clothing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you, so that you may cure him of his leprosy. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, Go wash yourselves seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot, and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, Wash and be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him. And his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, now I know there is no God in all the world except in Israel. A reading from the Gospel according to Luke, the 10th chapter, beginning with verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him, to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or bag or sandals, and do not greet anyone on the road. 
When you enter a house, first say, peace to this house. If someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. Stay there, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcome, eat what is offered to you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. But when you enter a town and are not welcome, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town we wipe from our feet as a warning to you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth, sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. Whoever listens to you listens to me. Whoever rejects you rejects me. But whoever rejects me rejects him who sent me. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. The word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Have you ever noticed that people have a tendency to overcomplicate things? Anybody? No? Y'all haven't experienced that? I'll tell you a personal story about overcomplicating something. It's one of the biggest shocks I have ever received. And it's a true story. I'm not making it up. Some preachers like tell fake stories. Y'all know that, right? I don't tell fake stories. Fortunately, I've had a stupid life. And I can tell stories. But I was enrolled in a physics course when I was at Clemson University. And, and the guy who was teaching it was notoriously hard to understand. I don't want to say he was a bad teacher because he wasn't. But physics in and of itself is a stupid thing. Shouldn't be required. But, you know, some of y'all might be physicists, I don't know. So the first semester I was signed up for it, I had to drop the class because my mom had had a heart crisis and some surgery and I missed a bunch of classes. And, and so I, I got back and they were teaching like, you know, if you were going to drink water, they were teaching 10 gallons a day. 
And I just, I couldn't catch up. So I went to the professor, told him what happened. He said, you should drop and come back next semester. And I said, okay, that's what I'll do. And when I came back the next semester, man, I was ready for him. I was geared up. I did, I did my studying for that thing because I said, I'm not going to feel like a doofus in that class next year. And I was roaring into the exam with a 94 average. Woo! I had been studying. I had learned all them formulas and checked all them processes, and I knew how to make sure my work was right. And I was, I mean, I was feeling good. I said, I'm going to make an A in physics. Boy, I'm going to tell people about that. Y'all know what happened. Final exam was like 999% of the grade or something. And I opened my report card that summer, and I was looking down through it, feeling really happy and feeling good about myself. And I looked at the very bottom, and it said physics, and it said D. And that did not mean done good. (laughs) And I was astounded. I couldn't believe it. How in the world could that happen? I had a 94 average three weeks ago. So I pulled out some trusty information I had and called up the old switchboard and got Dr. Henry Fogel on the phone. And I said, Dr. Fogel, this is David McManus. He said, hello, David. And I said, I do not understand my grade in your class. He said, well, what was your grade in my class? I said, I got a D. I had a 94 average three weeks ago. However many weeks it was. I'm embellishing, trying to make y'all laugh. But. <laughs> and that old man, he was a nice guy, you know, said to me over the phone, he said, David, you made a 40 on the exam. And he said, David, you overcomplicated things. You thought I was trying to trick you. And I did. I just knew for certain he was trying to trick me with some of the formulas he had on that page. I said, well, if he put it on the page, it must be the right one. And you know it was not. But I used it anyway. He said, David, you overcomplicated things. And that sweet man that I really liked said to me over the telephone, you gave 140%. And I thought maybe he was about to tell me he was going to change my grade. You know what I mean? You gave 140%. That sounds like your football coach about to tell you you don't have to run laps. But that sweet old man said, you gave 140% and the physics odometer flipped on you. And I realized that he was right. I had overcomplicated Something that he had intended to be simple, and I assumed it was a trick. Oh no, that can't be right. That's old Naaman in this story. Go wash in a river I just walked through? Are you kidding me? Now he probably rode through in his chariot, right? But he just passed through this thing. Go wash it. I have been to the River Jordan, y'all. It don't look like the paintings. It's not that significant looking. And he said, are you kidding me? Go wash in this. I could have done that at home. Isn't that what he said? I crossed two good rivers to get here or something like that. We got two good rivers back home. I could have washed in then. But he didn't, did he? 
But he comes because this little slave girl knew that the solutions to life's problems are simple if we don't decide that we are the ones who have to solve them. Let that sink in for a minute. This little girl who had been taken from her home, possibly even by Naaman himself, on a raid into Jerusalem, had been stolen from her family, taken home to her house. She knew that there was a God in heaven, a God of Israel, who works in simple but mysterious ways. And she knew that there was a prophet in Israel who could tell him what he needed to do, which was... Trust. All over your Bible, from beginning to end, the people of God are pushed to trust God. To trust that God has our best interest at heart. And so even the ancient Israelites, when the king of Aram would come in and defeat them, they assumed that must have been what God wanted and God must have a purpose for using Naaman to defeat them. That's faith, isn't it? That's trusting that God is good. And in the midst of things that we perceive might be bad, God can work in good ways. So even in the captivity of a little girl, God worked to make God's self known. And that's the simple truth of it. Naaman is in need of salvation. He's in need of deliverance. Physical at the very least. But what he has is a complete and utter conversion. So he actually asked the prophet if he can take some of the dirt of Israel home to worship on. Because he has discovered that the only true God is the God of Israel. And how did he discover it? Because he bowed to the idea of simplicity. I don't know if you know this or not, but people seem to be in all fired hurry since about 1700 to make salvation complicated. Well, really, probably since about hmm, 34 AD. <laughs> you got to do it our way. One of my favorite jokes that preachers tell all the time, and I know you've already heard it already, is you know, somebody dies and and they get to heaven and Peter says, you got to go in the last room on the left because that's where all the Methodists are. And he says, but be quiet when you walk by the first room on the left, right? And this goes on and on and on and on and on. And finally somebody says, man, I've heard you say that about a hundred times now. Who is in that first room on the left? And he says, well, that's where the Baptists are. They think they're the only ones here. People have complicated salvation by putting on it. You must do this thing. You must do this thing so that we know that you are like us and think like us. But all and literally all that was required of Naaman here is that he trusts that what God said would happen would happen. And how did God say it? He said it through his person, his prophet, the one that he had called to vomit up what he had put in the heart of that person. And that person said, go to the river, wash yourself seven times, and you will be cleansed. 
Oh, but that's not what Naaman wanted. He needed some circumstance. He needed some pop. He needed for this guy to come acting out like he was important. He needed him to come out, ring his bell, say, Oh, great and mighty Naaman, I'm glad you have blessed me with your presence. He needed for him to come out, pour some oil on his head, rave his hand over him, wave his hand over the leprosy, do something fantastic. He needed for him to come and kneel at the altar and weep and wail and gnashing of teeth. He needed him to come and get blessed with oil. He needed him to come and get drowned with water. He needed him to come and get himself a membership card. He needed him to come and give $1,000 so he could get 10000 in return. He needed him to come and do something magnificent. That's what he needed to be told. He wanted this prophet to tell him that if he would come and he would do something, if he would do something that was so significant in some magisterial way, that this guy would come out and there would be bells and whistles and smoke and fire and flames and singing angels and all of this kind of stuff. And what the prophet says, go take a bath. You'll be all right. Simple. But he rejected that. Because he wanted it to be complicated in the same way I wanted that physics text to be complicated in the same way that modern Christianity chokes the life out of the gospel. If you don't sing this music, you go into hell. You drink beer, you go into hell. You do this, you go into hell. Let me ask you, have you ever stopped and wondered with all these things people say are going to send us to hell now, have they pondered that suddenly these things are more powerful than the blood of Jesus? If I say to someone... You know, if you take a sip of Chardonnay with your chicken, I don't know, is that right, Ken? I can't remember what it was that you let me taste. I told Ken, I said, I don't like wine. Ken says, because you haven't had real wine. It was good. (laughs) What was I talking about? So if I say, Ken, no, Ken, if I drink that, I'm going to go straight to hell when I die. Does that mean that all of a sudden that that Chardonnay that he served me was more powerful than the blood of Jesus? No! What does the Bible tell us over and over is required for salvation? It says faith, belief, live in covenant with the Lord your God. A covenant of faith. Jesus made a new covenant with us, a covenant based on His blood, on His death, on His suffering, on His performance, on His keeping the law, on His doing something, not on our doing something. Do you hear the difference? Everything required to be done, everything required to be formed, all the bells and whistles had been played and sung, and Jesus played and sung them on a cross for you. All that's required now is that you say, Pass me not, O gentle Savior. Like the thief on the cross, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Pretty simple, isn't it? Don't complicate it. Now you might ask, well, what about keeping the law and doing all these things? We don't keep the law out of obligation for salvation. We keep the Ten Commandments out of gratefulness for what Christ has done for us. And we do it because we're being changed and transformed into people who love God and love our neighbor as ourself. 
That's the work of grace in us, that God is working in us to change us so that we are not enslaved to sin and death anymore and that we can be changed and become people who don't think only of ourselves and serve only ourselves because that, dear ones, is the claw of sin that drags you into things that the Bible says are sinful. The idea that my life is all for me and for me to serve me and to serve what I want, but Jesus is working to change that in us that work does not save us it sanctifies us what justifies us before God is believing the simple message that if we believe in Christ we will not perish but have eternal life it is that simple that is why some great theologians said John three sixteen is the greatest of all the Bible verses that's why Karl Barth Another great theologian, when asked what is the greatest thing he had ever learned, he said, Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. To trust, to trust Christ to save us is all there is. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 2, we're saved by grace through faith, not of works, because if we were saved by what we do or by what the prophet do, then we would boast about that. But Naaman had no place to boast about the mighty prophet. He was angry at the prophet. The boasting came when he realized that God had worked through something astronomically simple and that he had thought about dismissing it. And so he said, now I know where the true God is. Oh, but if the prophet had come out shaking a lily over his head, rubbed him with some desert sage, and burned a pimple off of him or something like that, he would have praised the prophet, not God. Oh, dear ones. The healing that God extends to us today is not complicated. We're called to trust and believe. And if you're worried about things in your life that might prohibit you from nearness to God, trust that God will work in those things to heal you of them. The Scriptures are full of the promise that God will transform our hearts. The, one of the very earliest promises of a new covenant in that, the prophet Ezekiel says, God will put a new heart within us. In another place, we're told God will write His law upon our hearts. And that, dear ones, is as we are being delivered and made whole. But that first move, that first move of salvation is made already for you. Christ came, Christ died, and Christ was raised. There is nothing prohibiting you from receiving salvation other than a lack of want to. Because it does mean giving your life to someone else. It does mean, just as it meant for Naaman, that he now belongs to another God. He had a complete and utter conversion by trusting something simple. And that's what God asks us to do today. In all of the things that Jesus gave us, there is a simple matter of trust. When he said to go into all the world and baptize and teach, 
baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. He was talking about a simple bath that washes us and makes us new. When he says, this do in remembrance of me, when he held up the bread and the cup in front of his disciples and said, this is my body, he didn't ask them to understand how that could be possible. He simply asked them to trust, this is my body. To trust his words and to trust that grace could be received through what was happening in front of them. And the same thing is true for us today. The promise is held out to us that when we come and receive these things in faith, we come and receive the body and blood of Christ. We come and receive the life of Christ into us. As some nutritionist famously said, you are what you eat. And we receive the grace and are transformed. And we don't have to understand it. That's why our official statement in the hymnal in that prayer we says is this is a holy mystery that we don't have to understand any more than Naaman had to understand how going back to a river he had already walked a road through and putting himself in it seven times was going to heal his leprosy. But it did. Can you come to this table today trusting the promises of God that here you are met by the risen Christ who will give His life to you? That in the font, in baptism, we come and die to ourselves and are raised to new life in Jesus. That when we trust in Jesus, we become in Jesus. And because we are in Jesus, we have already died, Paul says, and Christ lives in us. It is horrifically simple that we trust Jesus to save us. So Paul, when writing to the Roman church, to avoid complications, said to them, Believe in your heart God raised Jesus from the dead. Say with your lips that He is Lord and you will be saved and no one who calls on Him will be put to shame. Do you hear how simple that is, church? Can we be like Naaman today? Can we come to this table trusting that the simple promise of God is true? That all we need is the hand of Jesus that's already extended to us. I ask you that eternally important question in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.